and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. Before we get to today's guest, I just want to tell you a little bit about the podcast and how you might be able to help us out. So I work as a mental performance coach when I am not on this podcast, and that gives me the opportunity to talk to all kinds of intentional performers. These are people in business and in sport, and I work with them on their mindset. So I help them unlock possibilities, unlock potential, so that all Ultimately, hopefully, they can enjoy success. And I love what I do for a living. So as a result, I fired up this podcast to try to find out how these people intentionally set their mind to be their best. So I want to thank all of you for listening to the podcast. We get a lot of emails, texts, phone calls from all of you saying that you're listening. So keep on listening. We appreciate you being here. And if you enjoy this podcast, please go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers and just throw us a few bucks. It really does go a long way. We've constantly tried to iterate and make the show better. And in large part, that is because of the people that have given on Patreon. So once again, patreon.com backslash intentional performers and throw us a few bucks and we will be forever grateful. Now to today's guest. Sam Morris is somebody who I was connected with from our good friends Kyle Maynard and Joey Leonardo. Uh, Kyle was on the show previously, and Joey is his manager, uh, and they're just great people that have really gotten us a bunch of guests that you've listened to in the past, and they said we should chat with Sam Morris. So Sam is certainly an intentional performer. In this episode, he's going to talk about his upbringing, where he grew up in Maine, in rural Maine, and what that was like, and how that shaped how he sees the world and his values. Um, And Sam is going to talk about an accident that took place uh, when he was only 24 years old that really shaped his life. And I'm going to let him tell that story uh, and not ruin it for you. But today, Sam works as a coach. He has a company called Zen Warrior Training, where he really tries to help people unlock what's inside of them, get in touch with their feelings somatically and in touch with nature. So you'll find out that Sam is part Zen, part warrior, and he really has a passion for helping others and inspiring others. So he is a speaker. He is a coach. He is somebody who you are going to love, and I'm just excited to bring Sam to you. So without further ado, I present to you Sam Morris. 
Sam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We chatted briefly a couple months ago, and uh, I've been looking forward to this because our conversation then uh, was fascinating and interesting and uh, exciting. And a quick shout out to Joey uh, Leonardo, who uh, connected us, and Kyle Maynard, uh, who connected us originally. Uh, Both those guys have been huge supporters of the podcast and Uh, We've had some amazing guests because of the two of them. So thanks to Joey and thanks to Kyle for connecting us. Uh, And where I'd love to start with you is I know that you have um, a turning point in your life uh, that that drastically altered how your world was shaped. But before we even get to that, I really want to try to unpack what childhood was like for you and just get a sense of who you are and how you came to be. So if you can start by just painting that picture for us, uh, I think that would be great. Cool. Yeah. Um, first of all, thanks for having me on, Brian. Um, so my childhood was I grew up in Maine and uh, grew up on an organic blueberry farm. Uh, born in 1975. Time out, time out, and, Sam. Sam, hold on. I, that's not what I was expecting. Organic blueberry farm. So yeah. was organic fruit a, a big thing in, in the 70s? Like I'm, I just wasn't around then, so I don't know. Fruit's always been a big thing, as far as I know. Organic, <laughs> but organic. Well, or no, that was actually that's a very good question because at that time, uh, my parents' farm was one of very, very few organic blueberry farms in the state, in one of the largest uh, areas that produces blueberries in the country. So, um, that was kind of cool. Although at that age, I didn't really see it as cool. I saw it as more of a pain in the ass because organic blueberry harvesting means that you are harvesting blueberries along with all this other crap that is growing in the blueberry field at the same time. So in a conventionally grown field, you just have these fields of nothing but blue. And it's people go out and just harvest pounds upon pounds upon pounds of berries very easily. And with organic farming, because there's competing species going on in the blueberry farm, uh, you have to it's it's a lot more time consuming and it's uh, takes a lot more effort. And so. At the time, I used to constantly harass my my mom who ran the farm, and I would tell her that she needed to go conventional because it was too much of a pain to rake organically. But now it's uh, you know it's taken on a whole new trendy kind of uh, thing these days, and and uh, she's been at it for the past forty nine years. And uh, what was her was, re- what was her reasoning for doing it back then? She had uh, I don't think I think she kind of stumbled into it. She um, moved from, let's see, I guess she was living outside in Philadelphia at the time in graduate school. And then my father and she moved to Maine in 1970, I believe. And um, they looked for a place. They happened to find this place, which just happened to be located, um, surrounded by 70 acres of blueberries. And so it was just kind of something that they stumbled into. And she started to uh, a small organic blueberry business, and it just kept on going every summer. She's had customers who have been coming back for the past literally 49 years since she started in 1970. 
And it was my first job <clears throat> was as a blueberry raker starting at the age of three. And so I was, I made my first income at the age of three raking blueberries. And every summer I would go and I would, uh, I'd buy a, a, like a John Deere tractor from the local John Deere store. It was very, you know, very rural country living and, um, very slow paced lifestyle. Um, not a lot of people. I grew up, uh, my, the house that I grew up in was a half a mile from the, a half a mile down a dirt road from the closest house. And so, um, you know, my first few years of my life were spent largely naked, uh, running around the farm and riding BMXs and dirt bikes and lawnmowers, converted lawnmowers and, you know, whatever I could, just having fun doing stuff that a kid growing up in the country in Maine does, uh, canoeing, uh, hiking, spending time in the woods. I spent a lot of time actually, uh, just kind of being on my own and doing my own thing. And it was, it was a lot of fun. I think it really actually kind of impacted the person that I am today. What was, what was dad doing? Was dad also involved in the farm or did he do something else? My dad was minimally involved in the farm. Um, he was, uh, he was and still is an architect. So he's uh, one of the more well-known residential architects in Maine. And uh, he, was, he was always either designing homes and um, various different facilities or um, doing a, uh, he was a uh, president of the Architectural Institute of America uh, main chapter. Uh, he was constantly involved with various different land use planning committees, stuff like that. So he was he was on the go all the time. Um, for for someone living in Maine, he had a very very busy lifestyle, and uh, ran five companies. Uh, but uh, his his specialty is architecture. So it's an amazing mixture. You have this sort of blue collar blueberry uh, activities. You have a rake in your hand when you're three years old. And then you have architecture, which requires uh, a lot of education. Uh, I remember when I was in college, the architects, architecture students seemed to be some of the busiest ones. Um, so uh, how did that for play? Sure. How did that play for you that you had dad who uh, was obviously well regarded and uh, doing a lot of work. And then you also had mom doing this other business that required sort of blue collar work. How did that play for you as a kid? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, uh, I would say that my father's influence uh, taught me the value of ambition, hard work, um, staying steady, showing up for stuff when you don't want to show up for it. Um, those types of values, which I feel like I'm still taking in. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm nowhere near, uh, where he was back when I was growing up. <clears throat> like he was just on it all the time. In and what, so in what way, in what way do you feel like you're not where he was? Uh, you know, I find myself, um, I think that I have less of a, um, focused discipline when it comes to uh, making things happen with with my work than he did. And so I'm inspired to 
start to become better at doing that. And I've been on that path for a while now, uh, but it just was something that came very natural to him. And uh, my mother was uh, equally engaged in the world, but in a very different way. She was engaged with her vegetable garden and with her blueberry farm and with her flower garden and with her horses. And so there is this interesting kind of cross between interesting mixture, I should say, of uh, sort of the engaged business, ambitious lifestyle and um, a lifestyle of being connected to nature. And I find that that's that's actually that hybrid is actually sort of it continues to influence me these days. It's like I, I grew up with both of those values kind of equally. And so, um, you know, the, with the work that I'm doing, it's very like it's very down to earth work. It's very connected to nature and it's very connected to human nature. And then uh, which I think there's we could talk about this a little bit more later maybe but i i don't see that there's a really a separation between true human nature and nature itself uh which is the zen part of my work can you and, can you actually just jump right let's just go there because i i'm yeah. i'm curious now and so uh yeah talk about how that plays for you today and the work that you do great so the work that i do it's a coaching program called zen warrior training and what i'm the, the focus of my work is to help high performers and entrepreneurs to be able to stay connected to their center, to being in a very intentional way of living and to connect with their true nature and to, uh, by doing so, get out of the mental chatter that's in their head that's holding them back and connect to what's really deeper than all of that and then bring that out into the world to have a more impactful presence in the world. Very cool. Can you just map that onto childhood a little bit? Cause we were talking about childhood, just map that out for us a little bit. Yeah. So, um, growing up, I spent, like I said, a lot of time just in nature <clears throat> and for me, that was a great opportunity looking back to experience these moments that were so incredibly peaceful. It's like everything, it was like there was no mental chatter. There was no noise. There was just me and the trees or me and the lake or me and the, you know, boulder that I was sitting on or whatever it was. And just a, a complete sense of harmony between self and nature. And, um, back then it was like, this is life. This is, this is just life. This is how life is. And then I realized as I went along that we pick up these condition, this conditioning, these ways of seeing the world and the, these ways of seeing ourselves that are, that get in the way of that that get in the way of that really peaceful, serene, clear, connected mindset. We pick up these habits of behavior. We pick up these unconscious beliefs. We pick up all of this stuff that contributes to the mental chatter in our minds that most people only know as themselves. 
They only they think that all that mental chatter is who they are. But that mental chatter is actually something that is slowly picked up unconsciously over a long period of time and it creates a it creates a false identity. And so that false identity, if it's not dealt with, leads to some pretty major issues. It leads to sickness, it leads to um, you know, relationships breaking up, anxiety, depression, all of this stuff, which isn't actually like those are all symptoms of where we're disconnected from nature and disconnected from our own nature. And so since I had a really strong foundation of being connected to nature growing up, it, it left such an imprinting inside of me that this is actually who we're meant to be. We're meant to be really inseparable from nature. We're meant to have that connection that where there's just that serene stillness, where there's a focus of attention. There's not all this mental chatter. There's not all this identity identification going on. There's just yourself and there's nature and it's one organism. And so the work that I'm doing is to help people to see how they have created a false identity and the way in which those that false identity has interrupted their ability to be connected to themselves and connected to nature. And then through doing so, through bringing their awareness to that, then they are able to work with that and restore that natural connection. So I have a, I have a couple of thoughts and then a, a, a question. Uh, first of all, it's just very cool to think about nature in the way that you you do and i haven't thought about it that way i'm thinking about the movie avatar and how that plays in that movie and um how much they use nature and are in nature yeah. so that was one thought that came into my head and the other thought was anyone who's ever gone on a whitewater rafting trip or hiking or um you know just out in the grass like barefoot um knows the power of nature and mm -hmm. the thought i had in my head is like well yeah that's who we are as animals like mm -hmm. originally we are cavemen in nature and now we build these cities that are air conditioned and uh i said to someone at lunch today i said man i really want to find a place where i can work outside in the summer because unlike where you live for us in the in the northeast you know we don't get good weather uh all the time so when it's nice out we really cherish it and sure. i said it, it becomes sterile when i'm in my office and there are times where i just feel like i i'm itching to be outside mm -hmm. and so it just brought up some thoughts to me of, of what is my inner nature and 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 how mm -hmm. does that present itself and how can i pull that out more often and certainly when i go on hikes and your phone doesn't work or um you are just being uh, and your Zen uh, mm -hmm. that comes out. And so mm -hmm. the question I had for you is, as I think back to how you were brought up, it sounds like there is this combination of Zen when it comes mm -hmm. to mom and when it comes to uh, being out in the garden or, or being out on the farm or being with horses. That sounds very Zen-like. And mm -hmm. then you have dad who sounds very warrior-like. And you mm -hmm. said you used the word ambitious and driven and Oops. disciplined. So um, funny that I've actually never made that connection before. So that's that's actually very accurate. So yeah, talked about talk about mm -hmm. mom and dad. From uh, it, do you see one as sort of Zen and one as sort of warrior, and and then yourself as a blend of the two? 
I do. I do. <clears throat> um, yeah, my mom's certainly Zen. I mean, she was, she was pre hippie. She, um, she grew up during the hippie era. Um, but she was, she went to Radcliffe, which is uh, part of Harvard, um, back in the sixties. And she was, um, the first person who would walk around campus with bare feet and army pants. And, um, <clears throat> she was just, she, I, I joke with her sometimes that I think that she's actually a horse, not a human being. And she kind of relates to that. She, she grew up so fond of horses and, uh, riding them and, and grooming them and everything that she developed this connection with horses that, um, she still has today. And she, um, she's just, uh, she grew, grew up very close to her, I guess uh, you would put it as an animal nature in the, in the true sense. Um, she was really not that impacted by culture. Um, she was just doing her own thing and she preferred to be, you know, growing vegetables or planting her flowers or, uh, weeding her garden or harvesting blueberries. Um, she just, and she's still doing that today. She's 75 years old today and she's still very much focused on protecting the land. She's been, uh, the president of a local land trust in Maine and, um, so she's that nature and my mom are sort of inseparable. And then with my dad, he's also uh, somewhat connected to nature himself. But um, his his ambition was, um, you know, the war, the the warrior. Something that defines the archetype of the warrior is the is sacrifice. And I saw my dad sacrifice a lot to be able to provide for uh, my family growing up. Now, fortunately, he was able to sacrifice while doing work that he really loved to do. So it's not like he was just kind of beating himself into submission and doing like he would have done the work that he has to do anyway. But I saw him sacrifice a lot of uh, free time and, um, and, you know, running five businesses is no joke. It would take up weekend hours. And he was, you know, he's constantly working, constantly sacrificing. And, and that really is part of that warrior archetype. So did you have siblings? Is, Set, I Sam? did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Older brother, two years older than me. Mm -hmm. And and what was he like? My older brother was incredibly smart. Um, very, very, very book smart. Um, and, um, to the degree that he, there, he had a little bit of a hard time, uh, connecting with people and he was kind of, uh, in his own world for quite a while. Um, and you know, that, that, um, that impacted me in a way, uh, because he, he wasn't quite, uh, I wouldn't put him as, as the most accessible person growing up um so a lot of the time while we're at home as i was growing up <clears throat> a lot of the time i was kind of uh just doing my own thing because my parents were doing their own thing my brother was in his own world so i was kind of doing my own thing so uh but he's an awesome guy super awesome guy really um 
connected to his heart, just a kind human being and very intelligent. And when did you start getting into cycling? Because I know that's obviously a big part of your story, which we're going to get into. But were you cycling as a kid or were you playing other sports as a kid? When did cycling come come to be? Well, uh, it, it was gradual. I mean, like most kids, I grew up riding a BMX and, you know, uh, a road bike here and there and that kind of thing. Uh, but it wasn't until the, let's see, actually, yeah, uh, I guess when I was maybe 15, I took my first cycling trek, um, which was probably a couple hundred miles, something like that. And then I think when I was 16, I did another one <clears throat> where I went from uh, Bar Harbor, Maine, up to Eastport, Maine. Um, so that was probably also a couple hundred miles. Who introduced and, you to that? Who introduced you to those those treks? You know, I think it was. I think that's something that I kind of got into because my brother uh, had been cycling, um, and uh, I was just kind of following his lead. And so, um, in fact, he and I did that Bar Harbor to Eastport uh, adventure together. Uh, back in, gosh, that must've been 1991 or something like that quite a while ago. Um, and then I did some cycling with my family and a friend out in Montana, um, back in 1992, I guess. So that was, those were my first forays into cycling treks, uh, doing, uh, bike touring. And then, uh, in the summer of 98, I, uh, did two treks um, where I was actually doing it for a job leading a group of teenagers. Uh, first one was around uh, Cape Cod uh, and then the second one was from uh, Stowe, Vermont to Portland, Maine. So at this point and you're 23? Is that? Yeah, I would have been, yeah, I guess I would have been 22, just about 23 at the time. Okay. And then uh, the net, and so, so that was a summer job for me when I was off from college. And then the following year, I went back and worked for the same company. And uh, initially, I was supposed to be leading a trek uh, from like Amsterdam to Paris. And so I was like, oh, that's cool. It's all flat. And I get to speak French. And, you know, I'm like, that's, go to museums. It's going to be mellow. And so I was prepared for this Amsterdam to Paris thing. And then my boss calls me in a couple of weeks before all the trip started. And he says, Sam, uh, I am in need of a, a leader to lead the uh, transcontinental trip. And I was like, oh, my God. And he said, Are you willing to do it? And I had never even it had never even occurred to me. I was not that ambitious as a cyclist. But when he said it, I was like, you know, this may be the only chance in my life that I have to cycle across the U.S. And so, sure, why not? And so I decided right then and there to just go for it and figure it out. And so we biked close to 4,000 miles over the course of uh, 52 days or so, something like that. And uh, so breaking that down, it turns into an average of about 80 miles a day. And a lot of those days were a lot shorter than 80 miles <clears throat> because we had a number of hot uh, people had to go to emergency rooms over the first uh, week or two. It was a slow start, um, but then eventually we made up for it when we were in the Midwest and we did 10 straight days of 100 miles a day or more. 
Um, so we made it. Uh, that was that was the summer of 1999, and I was 23 years old. And we camped every night, cooked all our own food. And, so where do you uh, where do you cycle? Where did you start, and where did you end? We started in Seattle. We went up the Olympic Peninsula first, which was I thought was really annoying because it's not making any headway east. So we spent close to a week just biking up the Olympic Peninsula. And then we came back into the mainland and we went uh, across Washington, uh, Panhandle of Idaho, down through Montana, Wyoming, or yeah, am I getting those backwards? I think it's Montana and then Wyoming. Yeah. And then down as far south as Pueblo, Colorado. And then um, from Pueblo, we started east, went through Kansas and Missouri and Illinois and Ohio. And uh, and then we finally ended up on the New Jersey shore. Very cool. And yeah. so you said people would have to go to the hospital, get sick. What was your mindset like when you're taking a trek like that? It sounds like you weren't necessarily prepared for a trek like that. Um, sort of caught you off guard. Uh, what I was, was your mind? Go- yeah, flying by the seat of my pants, yeah, doing so- whatever I needed to do. You know, I actually didn't. I think if I remember, I think that I, I think I wore the same pair of bike shorts for the first two to two and a half weeks. Like I don't think I even took them off <clears throat> because at the end of the day, I was too exhausted to even take my shorts off and change them in the morning. I just kept the same shorts on, and I would just like. I'd take some gold bond and I would open up my shorts and I would just, you know, sort of put some gold bond down into my shorts and put, put them back on. And it was, uh, yeah, it was gnarly. It was, it was nonstop. We were, we were going literally from the crack of dawn to dusk every day and, and then getting into camp and then having to cook our food and then set up our tents. And then the next day again, like take down the tents pack them on the bikes, get going. Uh, we would just have to kind of, and you know, we had someone put it, uh, their, put their chain ring through their calf. Uh, we had someone, um, who was bulimic who had to be sent home. We had, um, several people with knee problems. Uh, it was, it was a real slow start, <laughs> but eventually we got, we sort of got a rhythm going after a while. And, and when you're cycling, do you listen to music? Do you talk to yourself? Uh, do you breathe? Like, what would you be doing back then? So, um, I didn't listen to music. Um, I guess I probably would have had to carry around a Walkman back then because that was pre iPods. So, um, but I also, I, I basically just kind of stayed there with my breath really my breath and my and the rotation of the pedals and uh you know thinking whatever thoughts i was thinking singing songs in my head that kind of thing i didn't have any headphones or anything and i wanted to stay present to anything that might be required of me so that's why i didn't have any kind of music or distractions i wouldn't didn't have any cell phones we did carry a couple of emergency cell phones, but there were these total pieces of crap that didn't work at all. So we never used them. And, um, you know, from time to time, I would be required to ride from the way back farthest because I was I was usually like the cleanup, the sweeper, the sweeper kind of in the back of the line, just making sure that everyone was in front of me. Uh, and occasionally from time to time, I'd have to ride up 
all the way to the front of the line, which sometimes could be several miles based depending on how far people had spread themselves out. Because we had some bikers who they would be riding in the front and they would kind of take advantage of being in the front where they were out of sight. And so they would just ride faster and harder. So then I would have to ride harder than them to go from the back of the line all the way up to the front of the line and check on them and, you know, tell them, put them in their place if I needed to and that kind of thing. So there's that kind of thing. I had, it was, I had to constantly stay um, on top of my responsibilities as a leader uh, the whole time. So, um, and where, where did you go to college? Went to, well, I started out at Berkeley college of music in Boston and then I only made it so far there. I only made it three semesters because I was, while I have a love and passion for music, I was uh, not so good with the academic side of music. Um, and I was also in a place in my life where I should not have been in college, I don't think, because I was wasting a lot of time and basically just kind of getting high with friends and ignoring responsibilities and having jam sessions. I mean, it was like a free-for-all. It was like three semesters of a total 18, 19-year-old free-for-all. And um, I made it through three semesters before dropping out. And then I took a couple of years off. Uh, during that time off, I attended National Outdoor Leadership School. And that was kind of a real shift for me in my life where I reconnected with myself in a way where I had sort of lost touch with myself when I did Knowles. Uh, we did 75 days in the wilderness in Washington and British Columbia. And uh, that really like that created a shift that ended up impacting <clears throat> the course of my life. And so um, when I was done with that, I uh, I did a little ski bum time in, in Maine uh, at uh, my my favorite mountain in Maine, Sugarloaf, and then realized I did not want to work a, a $5 an hour job cleaning toilets and, um, and vacuuming condominiums, and I better do something about it. So I applied to Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts, and Hampshire was my kind of place because it was a liberal arts school where you could where you not only could, you had to design your own curriculum. And so that was really, I, I was such an independent person at that time that I actually required that kind of a structure. Uh, I would have been really bored and irritated by just going to classes and listening to long lectures and then having to take tests. So um, by designing my own curriculum, I was able to really be really engaged with what I was learning the entire time. And since everyone else in the school uh, was also doing that, like there would be some really interesting conversations that came about because no one was just waiting to finish the semester. Everyone was stoked about what they were doing. And music, uh, there's a guitar over your left shoulder. Uh, so I'm there's assuming a few, there's a few guitars. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I got to get your other shoulders. There we go. Oh, yeah. So yeah. you're going to teach me. I just started trying to play acoustic guitar and I, uh -huh. I just started to try to play acoustic guitar. Yeah. I didn't play any instruments growing up other than the recorder, which they made you made you do in third grade. Um, and so I tried to play acoustic guitar, and it's very, very hard, at least for an adult to pick it up. I found it to be very difficult. I took a few lessons. I need to probably take a few more. Um, but was guitar your your instrument yeah. of choice? And yeah, when did that, when did that start for, for you? It still is. 
started, I would say the uh, <clears throat> initial impulse came when I was probably five years old. And I learned what a guitar was, and I saw the shape of the guitar, and I was like, oh, my God, that is a beautiful instrument. You know, there's something so feminine about the look of a guitar, especially if you think about, like, a Fender Stratocaster, which you, I have right behind me here. It's like, if you look at it the way that it's actually, and I don't know if you, you if there are viewers, is this a recorded no, on video and audio? We're just doing audio. So it's audio. just you is yeah. able to see this, so... So everyone who's listening just has to imagine it. So the bottom of the guitar kind of looks like hips. And then it has this place where it kind of, uh, where it comes in and it looks like a waist. And then it kind of comes out, rounds around again, and it kind of looks like breasts. And then, so there, I think there was this kind of uh, strange, erotic kind of um, impulse, even as a five-year-old kid to want to play the guitar and i also just loved the sound of it you know i just thought it was the most awesome sound ever and um and so i remember asking the music teacher in my school uh at when i was in first grade six years old i said um i said i want to study guitar with you or can you teach me guitar lessons and he said i would have to wait until i was 10 for my fingers to be big enough and i was like 10 like I'm six. Like that's like, like that's like another lifetime from now. And so, but I did. I waited. I hung on. And um, then, when I was ten or eleven years old, I got my first guitar, uh, electric guitar. I'm laughing. Uh, the uh, I just read this research that the average four-year-old asks, on average, three hundred ninety questions a day. So I, so I can only imagine what six-year-old you said when they said you can't do this and you're going to have to wait four years, which is almost like half of the time that yeah. you've been on this earth. It's, uh, it's like, the, yeah. There are probably yeah, a lot of questions. They're probably like, well, why? Why can't I do it now? What, you right. know, anyone that's been around a four-year-old knows that they love to ask why I was, questions. I was so irritated. So I spent the next few years, rather than playing guitar from the age of six or seven onward, I spent the next few years just like, absorbing a lot of music a lot of which was like uh early 80s uh heavy metal music like i was super into like twisted sister and motley crew and uh rat and uh you know i just kind of took all of this stuff in and and then when i finally did start playing at the age of 11 uh my teacher asked me what i wanted to learn and I was like, I want to learn Motley Crue. I want to learn Rat. I want to learn how to play Smoking in the Boys' Room. And so, like, Smoking in the Boys' Room was one of the first tunes that I learned how to play after, like, Louie Louie by the Beach Boys. And, um, and, so, <laughs> and so then, wisely enough, uh, and I'll, I'll, I really attribute this to my teacher, who was this awesome dude. I was just totally in love with this guy. He was probably in his, I don't know, early mid forties at the time. He'd been around the music scene for a while at that point. Um, we used to do these lessons in a room like the size of a storage closet and you'd smoke Winston's like constantly in this room, which was hilarious. Like this is the kind of thing that happened like in the early eighties, little 11 year old kids in storage closet sized rooms with teachers smoking Winston's. But to me, he was like the, t the, 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 like a total badass of a human being. And so I just totally idolized him and looked up to him and, and I was going to follow whatever direction he led. And so 
he started to introduce me. He was like, you know, if you're playing songs like this, he says, you really should start to learn about the influences that these guys had, like where these guys were influenced. And so he took me from Motley Crue and Rat and these types of sort of cheesy hair bands, no offense to Motley Crue and Rat, but then he was like, he ended up using that to introduce me to Hendrix and to Clapton and to Steve Ray Vaughan and to Jimmy Page and like all of these incredible guitar players. And from then on, like I never looked back. I was much more into, you know, musicians like that. And once I uh, once I started to study them a bit and started to learn to play some of their songs, I was like, oh, my God, this is where it's at. So once so, you once you got to Hampshire, were you also studying music there? Or did you decide to study something else? So I did study music, but it wasn't a focus. In fact, I, I had the most incredible music class of my entire life at Hampshire. And it was a class taught by a musician named Youssef Latif, who died several years ago. And Youssef was a multi-instrumentalist, uh, saxophone player, flute player, played it oboe, I believe, and, and a number of other instruments, definitely oboe. Um, and he was at the level of like John Coltrane. In fact, when Coltrane was alive, the two of them would constantly like, they were, they were talking music together. They were playing together. Like he, and the guy used to play with like Duke Ellington and, and like these incredible musicians. And he was in his eighties when I studied music with him. So I took this course called jazz performance seminar that he taught. And, um, I was in that course for, uh, I think I took it five straight semesters. I just kept on taking it every semester I could because it was so incredible. And we would just jam. We would just jam over these incredibly sort of uh, abstract jazz tunes that he would write. It's, ama it was it's amazing. The I took a class. In, I went to Syracuse University and I minored in African-American studies. And one of the classes was it was on John Coltrane. And oh, is that right? the class, you basically, this guy came in and he, he's like, yeah, I played with train. And this guy was a character and, you know, he would basically just play the music. You'd have to listen to it and then figure out what the song was. And that was what our final exam was, was naming the songs of the music. And as somebody who was not, you know, I grew up on rap music pretty much. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, jazz was not something I was familiar with. It was, a really cool class and every once in a while I'll be somewhere now and I'll hear it. I won't remember the names cause we don't always remember what we're taught in uh, college, mm -hmm. but uh, I go back to that class cause it was just a, it was just a fun class. We would show up, we'd listen to music and he would tell us stories and he would just, that sounds super fun. Yeah. It was, Love it, was it. it was awesome. Um, Love it. So, yeah. so, but my, to, yeah. to get back to your question, just to finish your question, my focus in uh, Hampshire became, I was kind of doing a, a hybrid study of environmental studies, anthropology, uh, and uh, I finished the, my with some nonfiction writing. So it was a kind of a combination of that. I studied Buddhism. Uh, that was kind of the anthropological study that I 
did there and um and i studied environmental science and education and that kind of thing did you grow up that that was did you grow up with any any religious uh background no no there's kind of a nothing specific there is a bit of a sort of a puritanical ethic that still exists in maine uh that's this sort of unspoken uh thing that that sort of influences a lot of people's mannerisms and that kind of thing but I didn't really grow. I didn't grow up with any sort of spiritual or religious tradition. And did but I really resonated yeah. with the, the concepts of Buddhism. Like I really resonated with um, the idea of <clears throat> all suffering being caused by our attachments, um, and that when we can let go of our attachments, it's only then that we can find true freedom. And um, you know, the notion of karma of how. Uh, the actions that we take create certain outcomes. That that would that the the intention behind the action creates something that mirrors that intention that comes back to us, and that um, that we have to that the process of life is a process of learning about the the intentional action that we take and how it creates and how it influences our lives, and learning what's conscious and what's unconscious in terms of the intentions of the actions that we take. So that really resonated with me. Um, I really found kind of a, my first, it was the first spiritual tradition that was really grounded in what felt like reality to me. And so that, so it was during the first couple of years of college that I, that I found Buddhism. Today, what would you say your spiritual framework is? Uh, it's still very much in that in that sort of lineage, um, Zen, really uh, Zen or or Taoism. Um, really, the notion that we are nature, and and that's everything that the, the Taoism uh, all points to. Taoism, the Tao means the way, and essentially the way is the way of nature. Everything is nature expression, expressing itself. And so the, uh, the path to enlightenment, if you will, is by aligning ourselves with our true nature and then, um, and then cultivating that state of awareness inside of us through practices like meditation and breathing practices and that kind of thing. Awesome. So I yeah. want to get to 1999 because I think we were up to 1998, and yeah, uh, you have you have a an event that takes place that uh, shifts your life a little bit. So shifts uh, everything. Yep. Yeah. So, shifts everything in a very big way. Yeah. yeah. So in 1999, um, actually the the transcontinental cycling trek was <clears throat> the summer of 99. And so I had just finished leading that trek uh, in the end of August of 99. And then uh, two, a little less than two and a half months later, <clears throat> on November 9th, 99, I was in a car wreck caused by a drunk driver. I was riding in the back seat of the car, and it was an old piece of shit, uh, 1973 Nova with no seatbelt in the back. I was riding on the passenger side back seat, and um, he lost control of the car on a dirt road, fishtailed, went off, hit a tree, and my body got tossed from the 
passenger side over to the driver's side where the impact happened. And when my body collided with the side of the car, I broke my T12 vertebrae, vertebra and became paralyzed from the waist down. So ever since then, I haven't had any sensation or function below my navel. If you could, and, and if any of this is too hard to talk about, just let me know. Um, no, I've talked about it plenty of times. So there's nothing, there's no question that's too personal or too hard to talk about. Okay. So yeah. when you fly out, what do you remember about that moment and sort of losing feeling or just walk us through what that was like? Utter shock. Utter shock. <laughs> um, the feeling, I knew immediately what had happened. Um, I, in fact, I was even trained as a wilderness first responder, uh, and I had just done the training like two weeks before. So I had been practicing, um, taking people with spinal cord injuries out of, you know, harsh environments and so, or created mocking that situation. <clears throat> and so when the accident happened, uh, I f sort of fell back into the seat as the, as the, you know, glass and steel and everything crushed. And immediately I never lost consciousness. And I immediately knew that second that I was paralyzed. It was, it took no time at all. It went, I went straight from being in the most uh, able-bodied shape of my life with, you know, I just finished cycling across the U S with a hundred pound bike. I had these giant quads and huge calves and, went from being in the most able-bodied state of my life to suddenly having no sensation from my waist down. And um, when that happened, I remember my friend who was in the passenger seat turning around and asking me and saying, uh, Sam, are you all right? And I said, I just kind of like was catching my breath. And I was like, no, no, I'm, I, I'm not all right. I'm not all right. I just, I just broke my back. I'm paralyzed and like just uttering the words were just, I, I, you know, I just remember like, it just felt like this could not be happening to me. I mean, my whole life revolved around, you know, being in the outdoors and cycling and snowboarding and skiing and hiking. Like every day I was so active and suddenly I'm sitting in the middle of this back seat going, Oh my God, my, this, my life has just been taken away from me. And the shock was so intense that I was kind of, in a certain way, I was almost kind of floating above myself. It was like energetically, it was like I'd kind of pulled out of myself because there's, there's like emotional trauma, but then there's a type of trauma that's so severe that it creates a dissociative effect on you. You know, and I was totally, in a way, totally dissociated, just kind of sitting there like, oh, my God, in complete shock. And um, I was I was pretty um, once they brought me to the hospital, I, I mean, this went on for this level of shock went on for the next um, probably, I don't know, a couple hours or something like that. They brought me to the hospital, doctor. Uh, told me that I had suffered a complete spinal cord injury, um, meaning a total lack of sensation and function from the injury down. 
and uh, that I was probably going to spend the rest of my life like this, and that I was going to have to use a wheelchair, that I was going to have to catheterize myself, that I was going to have to, uh, that I would, I had lost all my sexual function. I mean, it was like the worst news that a man could possibly hear. Like it's, it's, um, it's like, it's like hearing that uh, half of your body has just died. That's basically what that, what that news is like. And, um, it's, and it's not something that goes away. You know, it's not something where you sort of grieve the loss and you bury the body and then you, and then you kind of get on with your life. It just continues. And that's just the beginning. What do you feel? What do you feel now as you, as you rehash the story? You know, I can, I can feel the experience still of that trauma. I mean, it's, I'm not in it, of course. Uh, I look at it somewhat objectively, um, almost like I'm kind of looking at, at another person's life in a way and describing another person's life in a certain way. It feels so far removed from my present situation because I have not only healed so much psychologically and emotionally since then, but I've also used the experience as an asset to me. And I continue to use it as an asset um, because it's really, my work really revolves around, you know, helping people not only to connect to their nature, but also to become as resilient as they possibly can. And so I had a crash course in resilience. Like I had to go through some intense, intense stuff. And that was just the beginning. I spent over two years in hospital beds from pressure sores, totally immobilized. Um, time out, time out. Uh, so I remember when you told me this, when we talked before, you're spending yeah. two years in hospitals. How do yeah. you, how do you stay sane if you did? And how do you have a mindset uh, to get out of something like that? Yeah. Um, so I stayed sane. There was a time period that lasted I would say nine of those months I had to take antidepressants. I had to be on some Wellbutrin because it was just too tough. Like it all started in 2002 uh, for the first couple of months or so. I didn't take anything. I just kind of laid there totally immobilized. They wouldn't let me move an inch. And so I, all I could do was watch a few channels of TV and read and, um, just kind of stare at the wall. So that was, that was the first couple of months. And then that should have been the end of it. But the doctor who did the surgery on my first pressure sore really messed up. And so I had to have multiple surgeries to correct that initial surgery. So I spent, uh, the first few months of 2003 also in the hospital. By that time, I needed to be on antidepressants. I just wasn't going to be able to handle it otherwise. And then um, in June of 2003, I had to go back to the hospital because I had the, a problem again. And then I spent the next seven and a half months from June 21st, 2003 to January 31st, 2004. I spent completely immobile that whole time, lying down in a bed, um, an especially made bed with, without being able to move an inch. 
and same deal, like three channels of network TV, um, plus the uh, Hispanic soap operas that I uh, <laughs> couldn't really get into. Um, I remember my mom bought me an Xbox at one point, so I had like a little mini DVD player on my lap that I would play an Xbox on. But just incredible boredom, just incredible boredom. So and then um, so I finally got out in January 2004 and then I didn't have to be hospitalized again for another few years. I think 2007 was the next time that I spent a few months, maybe two months. And then 2010, I spent a couple of months, 2011, a couple of months. And then 2014, I spent like three months. So if you add all the time together, it was like basically around two years or so that I spent hospitalized, lying flat on my back, totally immobilized. So it's something, I don't know, somewhere around like 16,000 hours or something like that. So, so way past the Gladwell uh, 10,000 hours. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. Uh, so you're an expert when it comes to having to stay still in hospital beds, not to make light of it. Um, yeah, no, it's it true. And it's it's actually in a certain way, yes, uh, it, it's 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 kind of funny and tragic and at the same time it's like it really cultivated something inside of me that i think is very much a part of who i am today and that is the awareness that i am not the circumstances of my life i am not my body i'm not my mind i'm not what happens to me i'm just I'm just the awareness that all of that is happening, that all those things are happening. And it's like, it could be me or it could be someone else. And some people suffer less, some people suffer more. So it really cultivated that experience in me that uh, where I had to, you know, every moment of every day, I could either go into a state of victimhood or I could go into a state of sort of neutrality just kind of being like, well, this just is what it is. And being in that state of neutrality day in and day out really uh, created this foundation of um, being independent from the circumstances of my life, if that makes sense. How did you, how did you create that for yourself? Where did that come from? Um, gosh, good question. Um, I think that was a byproduct partly of that upbringing in nature that I described where I was able to access that really silent place inside my mind where um, the, the noise in my head would quiet down um, or be non-existent. Um, I think some of that was after my injury happened, I started studying movement and meditation and breath work with a one of the world's premier somatic teachers who's now passed a woman named Emily Conrad. Um, and she, she really helped me to learn how to go internal inside myself and take my attention and get it out of my head and put it in my body. And even if I wasn't really able to move at all, I could still be in my body and, and kind of, in a somewhat meditative state, even though it was not an uh, obviously not ideal circumstances. Um, but I think it's kind of similar in a way to people who happen to have gone through prison sentences 
and the isolation actually creates something that makes them a more uh, connected person than they would have been without the isolation. It's like when there's nothing else around, you can either go crazy or you can just surrender completely. And that state of surrender actually welcomes in a, a whole new way of experiencing things. It's interesting when you were saying before, when I got out, where my head went was, gosh, it sounds like Prison. jail. Yeah. Totally. Uh, totally. I had another thought, which is, so you have a drunk driver who you could argue is responsible for for what you had to go through. You have this mm -hmm. doctor who screws up the, the surgery uh, mm -hmm. the first time around who causes you more mm -hmm. pain down the road. How do you not, you don't come off as a bitter human. You come off as a, you know, I, the reason I felt comfortable enough to make like light of the 10,000 hour thing is because of the way you present. Um, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have said totally. that to somebody else. Yeah. So, so, so how do you, how do you go towards light and how do you, um, not hold resentment or, or bitterness toward specifically those two people? Because those two people really created a lot of pain in your life. Um, yeah, that's one perspective you could look at it as it's, it's really, um, it's, it's a very selfish thing, really. <clears throat> it's, um, I, re I realized, and I don't know how I realized this, but it was just kind of, it was just kind of natural for me that if I didn't forgive the people who had done me harm, <clears throat> I was just going to do myself more harm. And so I forgave them not for their sake. I forgave them for my sake because I knew that I had a long road ahead of me no matter what. And if I held on to resentment um, and didn't forgive them, then I was going to cause myself a lot more harm than I needed to. Now, that's not to say that I was... Uh, particularly pleased about, especially with the, <clears throat> the surgical situation, that guy should have known better. Um, and I actually considered uh, filing a lawsuit um, a while later, but it ended up being too late to file a lawsuit. Uh, so uh, the statute of limitations had passed. Uh, so I was definitely in a certain ways I was more bitter towards him than I was towards the driver. The driver was, was, you know, it was a stupid accident, but it was the sort of thing that just, it can happen to anyone, you know, and especially if someone's a bit of a jackass and they've been drinking, you know, this type of, like when I was a kid growing up, it could have been me doing that to someone else, you know, around 16, 17 years old, driving like a jackass. That could have been me. So it was actually easier for, for me to forgive him in a way, even though his impact on my life was greater than the surgeon's impact on my life. But the surgeon, I was like, you know what? This guy's a professional. He knew what he was getting into. Like he should have known better when he was doing the surgery or sent me to a doctor who knew better what he was doing. Instead, it was like, it was like the arrogance to think that he was a better surgeon with this particular surgery than he was was what really pissed me off. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but I, you know, still at the same time, I knew that if I held on to resentment towards him, that was just going to be eating me alive inside. And I didn't want to have to deal with that stuff. I, I love how you brought up that it was selfish uh, for you. And I think a lot of times the word selfish gets a bad rap. And mm -hmm. 
Uh, I think we are told over and over again to be selfless, selfless, selfless. And I tell people all the time, the reason I do what I do is, is because of how it makes me feel. Like I love helping people and I love what it gives me. It gives me fulfillment. I love helping people unlock possibility and potential inside themselves. Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but that's, that's cause of me. It's not, <laughs> it's not selfless. Now, if you're selfish to be selfless, it's probably the best kind of selfish there is. But sure. I think too often people are not selfish and it, it hurts them and oh, they yeah. don't, they don't take care of themselves the way that they should. And it causes more pain for themselves and the people around them. So can you just talk yeah. about selfishness a little bit? Yes, I certainly can. So uh, the way I see it is the people who are sort of the classically selfish people who, who give the term selfish a bad rap, I don't really think that they're focused on themselves. I think they're focused on their egos. And I think they're trying to focus on protection of their ego. And I don't think they're actually aware of themselves. So true selfishness in the, in the positive term is really creating the best possible outcome for yourself and being, and really first and foremost, honoring what you need to do, how you need to think, the actions that you need to take to be able to best take care of yourself. And when you are taking care of yourself as much as you possibly can, then you can take care of other people too. Uh, and when you take care of other people, then it can create that sort of sense of selflessness. But those who are truly selfless always start with themselves. Those That's who are beautiful. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. What do you do selfishly to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and, and your own wellness? Oh, lots of things. So, so uh, one thing is diet. Um, lately, I've been doing a ketogenic diet. Uh, and which has really been serving my life and my energy, uh, keeping me in the best shape that I can be in. Can you talk about the diet a little bit? Because some people listening sure. won't have any idea what you're talking about, especially oh, yeah, yeah. us on the yeah. East Coast, West Coast. Sure, sure. You, guys, you guys are, you know, I find sure. like there are words that that flow with the people I talk to on the, especially in the LA area that that's haven't true. made its way east yet. It's just a that's little funny. slower to come over. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. I forget that. I've been kind of in this bubble for a while now. So, so uh, yeah. So ketosis is where you train your body out of using carbohydrates as a fuel source and into using fat as a fuel source. So basically when we eat carbohydrates, it's a great fuel source for, for temporary fuel. It gives us temporary energy, but anything that our bodies can't metabolize and turn into energy gets stored as fat. And so, uh, that's why, you know, that's why uh, I'm sure on the East Coast talk about low carb diets. That's why low carb diets are, you know, much better for you than eating a lot of carbs. You know, if you eat a lot of bread, pasta, sugar, processed foods and so forth, your whatever your body can't metabolize into energy is turning into fat. So it's pretty straightforward. So um and it's turning and and because of that, it, it's turning first into sugars, and then the sugars create the fat. So, so with uh, ketosis, what you're doing is you're actually training your body rather to, than deriving 
its energy source from, from carbohydrates and from glycogen instead, or in glucose, instead you're training your body to, to get its energy from ketones, which are created from fat, the metabolism of fat. So it's actually a very, very high fat diet. And what I mean by high fat is high uh, dietary fat. Like you, you, I wake up in the morning and uh, some people do like the bulletproof coffee thing with butter in the coffee. I do bulletproof yerba mate. I do uh, my, my yerba mate has two tablespoons of butter and like a couple of tablespoons of uh, coconut oil and blend it all up. And so that's the first fats that my body gets. And then, uh, you know, I'll eat stuff like bacon. I'll eat stuff like avocados. It's very, very fat intensive. And when you're eating in such a fat intensive way, your body actually burns more of its own fat. So, so I'm in, I, my waistline continues to go down despite the fact that I'm eating all of this fat. But you have to be in ketosis for that to happen. If you eat a lot of fat and you're not in ketosis, then it's not going to happen. But if you eat a lot of fat and you are in ketosis, then your body also starts to learn how to use your fat stores as an energy source as well as the fat from the foods that you eat. So, so I've been eating like that for several months now. It's been really good for my energy and my focus. Another thing that it... Uh, that ketosis is good for is sustained energy throughout the day. So with when you eat a lot of carbohydrates, your body goes through the natural insulin spikes and you're, you're having the blood sugar issues all day long and you're either like starving or after you eat and then you feel fatigued and you kind of have to go on that roller coaster of energy throughout the day depending on what you eat. When you're in ketosis, your insulin levels are pretty much straight across the board all day long. And so and and your blood sugar levels. So so it maintains this uh, even state of energy throughout the day and you never feel particularly hungry and you never feel particularly uh, like you're like you're in a mental fog from the food you just ate and that kind of thing. It's just like a sustained energy all day long. So that's one thing that I do to take care of myself. Um, I try to get a lot of exercise, although I wish I was actually getting more. I'm kind of that's one area where I need to really start to commit a little bit more to myself. Um, so so I have to ask, what does exercise look like for you? Any number of things. So um, sometimes I go to boxing classes. Um, sometimes I lift weights. Uh, sometimes it's more like uh, mobility training with stretching, that kind of thing. Um, a lot of my just pushing around my wheelchair actually gives me a fair amount of exercise. Has your, has a, your upper body gotten significantly stronger since, per, since yeah, the accident? Pretty, pretty jacked everything that i've everything that i'm missing from my lower body has somehow become part of my upper body so yeah um i have a hand cranked mountain bike uh in the winter i monoski which is a lot of fun monoskiing is amazing in fact i i taught monoskiing several years ago for a little while and that's one of my favorite things to do um so it's a combination of those things so you're still very active uh mm -hmm. We'll talk more about what you do uh, as far as 
uh, activity goes and how you bring in that somatic awareness training. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Meditation you mentioned earlier, uh, is Mm -hmm. that something you still do and, and what does that look like for you? Yeah, pretty much uh, every day. Um, in fact, I'm I'm always working with uh, what I would sort of call applied meditation. In other words, what I'm working with is to what degree can I be in a meditation as I'm doing the things that I'm doing throughout my day? So as I'm talking with you right now, I'm focused on on keeping my attention and my awareness inside my body and inside my breath. I'm focused on kind of relaxing my my eyes and and focusing my attention behind my eyes. I'm noticing thoughts come and go, feelings come and go. So because this is such a big part of my work, uh, being in this in this mental state, I'm constantly practicing it all day long as I'm working with clients and so forth. So a lot of people have a um, a specific meditation practice where they take a time aside and they're just with themselves and they just spend however long, uh, you know, focusing inside. Uh, I do that as well. Um, but it's more sort of periodically for me. Uh, and sometimes I'll do it for much longer periods. Sometimes I'll do that for like, I'll do like four hours of meditation just for, uh, an occasional, um, you know, supercharge or whatever. Um, which is, I think it's helpful to do long duration meditations from time to time. And then with um, the breathing practice, I do, I do breath work pretty frequently and I bring it into my sessions with clients pretty frequently as well. Um, Breath is the most powerful tool that we have available to us and it's right under our noses. It's totally amazing. I had an experience a week after my accident happened that was truly life-changing. Um, like the accident wasn't life-changing enough, this experience was just unreal. So I'm lying in this hospital bed, and seven days after my injury happened, the doctors took me off my morphine drip, and it was pretty sudden. It wasn't something that they weaned me off slowly. It was pretty sudden. And suddenly, for the first time since the night of the accident, I was lucid about what had happened to me. And I had a serious, serious panic attack. I mean, I thought that I was pretty groovy about my accident. Turns out that grooviness was the morphine, not who I really was. And I was just in a state of dissociation. So when the doctors took me off morphine and I became lucid, I had this panic attack that was bad enough that I, if I could have, I probably would have killed myself right there because I wasn't afraid to die, but I was terrified to live. It was just absolutely horrendous. Um, I thought, how the hell can I live my life like this? This is impossible. I can't believe this has happened to me. This cannot have happened. And this thought came in, um, this thought came in that just said, breathe as deeply as you can. And so I just breathed as deeply as I could. And a few minutes went by. And for the first few minutes, it was almost like that anxiety just became worse and worse. And then I got to this, it's like I reached this kind of psychological threshold and I went past that threshold. And on one side of that threshold was everything that I had ever identified with my body, my mind, where I grew up, where I went to college, you know, my friends, my hobbies, my interests, 
everything that I knew as me was on one side of that threshold. And I actually crossed over in this very real way onto into a whole other experience. And in that experience, it was just emptiness. There was nothing there. There was no mental chatter. There was no identification. And I could see that who I was was not my body. And who I was was not my mind. Who I was was not the story about who I thought I needed to be and my hobbies and my interests and the girlfriends that I'd had and this and that. Who I was was pure consciousness. And when I experienced that, it coincided with the breath taking on a quality that I had never experienced before. I could no longer feel my inhale or my exhale. It just felt like I was on the universe's life support system. It was, it was the definition of surrender. It was complete surrender. And it all happened through connecting to my breath. And from that point on, that was 19 years ago. From that point on, I've been so like adamant about breath and about bringing breath into it's one thing that really differentiates the coaching that I do from a lot of other coaching is I have such a focus on breath and uh, meditation because it's those it's those tools that allow us to be able to separate from our known reality and actually begin to step into something that is brand new that we don't know that is actually required to be able to truly transform. So I want to stop right there. Um, but before, before we stop, cause that was, that was incredible. And, uh, I don't really have too many words to add on to what you said. I just hope people can capture all of the wisdom and, and knowledge that you just provided. And, you know, I think finding breathing techniques that just Google, there are a ton of different ways to breathe and, um, yeah, or contact me Get or contact touch. Sam. So, yeah. um, Sam, give everyone an idea of what Zen warrior training is about and your coaching practice. I'm also curious why you decided to go down that route and that path. Uh, but maybe you can close the loop and just give us an idea of what you're doing now. And if yeah. they want to get in touch with you, how they can go about doing that as well. Yeah. Well, Zen warrior training is really, uh, working with committed high performers to clear out the cobwebs of their minds and step into themselves in a whole new way. Uh, use their deepest challenge as a catalyst for reaching their next level of potential uh, and really taking off and serving the world in a way that they would not be able to if they stayed in their traditional way of perceiving themselves. So that's what I do. I've worked with spiritual leaders and CEOs and number of different entrepreneurs and uh, professional actors. In fact, I actually worked with um, Rose McGowan right before the Me Too thing all happened, which I, I, I don't want to attribute any of, of that to, to me, but maybe a tiny little piece of that I'll, I'll take credit for. I don't know. Um, but um, yeah, I just work with people who are ready to totally excel in their lives through clearing out their their past and embracing an entirely new future using tools like meditation and breath work and personal awareness training. And why, why did you decide to go down this path? Um, I initially, I kept on getting these responses from people back years ago where they would say, man, like 
I've been going through this challenge that's been so intense when my girlfriend broke up with me or I lost my job or whatever. And I, I just don't know what to do with myself. And, and I, so often I think about you and I think about the stuff that you've gone through and where you're at and your attitude about life and your, your resilience and your, and your perspective. And it really inspires me and it always helps me to get through whatever challenge that I'm going through. And for a long time, I just kind of took those, that would happen so often, like seemed like every month or so, I would get this person who was just like, yo, thank you. Whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. It's so impacting my life. You're always the guy I think about when I'm going through hard shit. Thank you. And so for a while, I just kind of took that as a compliment. And I was like, well, that's cool. I appreciate that. You know, I'm really glad that how I'm living is, is impacting your life. And then a light bulb went off at a certain point and I realized, oh, this is actually telling me something. This is telling me, this is actually giving me, I'm being told by these people that I'm providing something for them that I didn't even realize I was providing. So Zen warrior training was born out of working on identifying what I'm actually doing internally to work with challenges and to be resilient and to move through and keep connecting to my potential despite my circumstances and teaching other people how to do the same thing for their own unique challenges uh, so that they can live lives, their lives to their fullest as well. Awesome. And if people want to get in touch with you, social media, uh, however, website, just give yeah, all that stuff a, a plug. Facebook.com slash Zen Warrior Training. My Instagram handle is Zen Warrior Training. Twitter is at ZW Training. Um, or you can go to my website if anyone wants to apply for a complimentary consultation about private programs. Uh, you can reach out to me uh, through an application form on my website at ZenWarriorTraining.com. Awesome. Sam, I'm happy we were able to connect. Uh, your perspective is amazing. And uh, I'm grateful to have met you over a computer. And hopefully at some point when I'm on the West Coast, uh, we can meet in person. Or if you're in Washington, D.C., uh, hopefully Absolutely. we can meet as well. Um, yeah. uh, my Twitter is at Brian Levinson and then Instagram intentional underscore performers. And of course, you can go to the website intentionalperformers.com. And certainly Sam is an intentional performer. Uh, so Sam, thank you again for coming on the podcast and looking forward to many more conversations in the future. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's been great. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I do breath work pretty frequently and I bring it into my sessions with clients pretty frequently as well. Um, breath is the most powerful tool that we have available to us and it's right under our noses. It's totally amazing. I had a, an experience a week after my accident happened that was truly life-changing. Um, like the accident wasn't life-changing enough, this experience was just unreal. So I'm lying in this hospital bed and seven days after my injury happened, the doctors took me off my morphine drip and it was pretty sudden. It wasn't something that they weaned me off slowly. It was pretty sudden. And suddenly for the first time since the night of the accident, I was lucid about what had happened to me. And I had a serious, serious panic attack. I mean, I thought that I was pretty groovy about my accident 
Turns out that grooviness was the morphine, not who I really was. And I was just in a state of dissociation. So when the doctors took me off morphine and I became lucid, I had this panic attack that was bad enough that I, if I could have, I probably would have killed myself right there because I wasn't afraid to die, but I was terrified to live. It was just absolutely horrendous. Um, I thought, how the hell can I live my life like this? This is impossible. I can't believe this has happened to me. This cannot have happened. And this thought came in, um, this thought came in and it just said, breathe as deeply as you can. And so I just breathed as deeply as I could. And a few minutes went by. And for the first few minutes, it was almost like that anxiety just became worse and worse. And then I got to this, it's like I reached this kind of psychological threshold and I went past that threshold. And on one side of that threshold was everything that I had ever identified with, my body, my mind, where I grew up, where I went to college, you know, my friends, my hobbies, my interests, everything that I knew as me was on one side of that threshold. And I actually crossed over in this very real way onto into a whole other experience. And in that experience, it was just emptiness. There was nothing there. There was no mental chatter. There was no identification. And I could see that who I was was not my body. And who I was was not my mind. Who I was was not the story about who I thought I needed to be and my hobbies and my interests and the girlfriends that I'd had and this and that. Who I was was pure consciousness. 